0: listening
1: to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. Now, I'd like to focus on something a a little bit different in terms of the process of doing astronomy uh, these days, in terms of who is doing astronomy. We're used to reporting on stories uh, from professional scientists linked to universities and research institutes uh, around the world. But we often say that astronomy is one of the oldest sciences and can be done by Anyone really, and there's a story uh, recently a research paper that's been published by a group of amateur astronomers. So these are people who are not active professional astronomers at a university or research institute, but do have a real love for the subject, and it's important to say an awful lot of skill and experience in uh, doing astronomy uh, and can make very important contributions to the research field. Uh, itself. So to find out a bit more about this discovery, I'm joined by Ian Sharp, who's an amateur astronomer based down in uh, the south of England. Uh, now, Ian, welcome to the programme. Thanks, Chris. You've been an amateur astronomer for uh, a while. Um, a long... <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit about your background. What's What's got you into astronomy and what's, what's, what's kept you going uh, over the years?
0: Well, um, I've been interested in astronomy since I was a boy. Um, back in the late 60s, really, my interest started. And uh, when, uh, my, when my family moved to Chichester um, in about 1969, I realized that the great astronomer, Sir Patrick Moore, uh, lived nearby in Selsey And I remember cycling... Uh, to meet him uh, when i was about 10 years old and really you know his enthusiasm sort of just cemented my interest uh, in the subject and so i've been a passionate amateur uh, ever since really and um and and of course uh, that's led to uh, a lifelong interest over 50 years
1: and so that's your your amateur astronomy career as you say is that inspired uh, all that all that time ago and and and, and then carried on um You've done other things uh, as well over the years. So, so astronomy has not been your career. You're, you're, you know, you're not a professional astronomy researcher. What, what, what have you got up to in the, on a, as a day job, as it were?
0: Well, yes, I, I my degree um, back in the late seventies is physics with electronics uh, in London, and um, I did uh, I did look at the possibility of becoming an astronomer, but uh, you know careers and money and all that sort of thing came into it so I ended up becoming um, a a seismic geophysicist for about four years working in Africa and then coming back to the UK uh, getting married in the mid-80s and working as a robotics development engineer developing electronic uh, hardware for robotics early robotics and then moving on to medical electronics until Uh, the early 90s. And then I um, decided to set up my own business as a a, a software consultant, very very technical software and training, and um, built a company and and, uh, eventually sold that. And three years ago, I retired. But in all that time, uh, there was a hiatus, actually, where astronomy sort of took a backseat with family, children, that sort of thing, and a, a very passionate interest in sport. Uh, but back in about, oh, I say, the late '90s, I really got back into the subject, and and uh, now it's now I'm retired. I have much more time to pursue the hobby, the hobby or or the the passion, I would say.
1: Mm. And so, one of the things that amateur astronomers can do, obviously amateur astronomers can just look at the sky they can just look through a telescope and, and look at stuff they can show other people the the sky at various events and so on you can take pictures now astrophotography is is something that as you say back in the 1990s was very different to the way it is now uh, in terms of the technology we have mm-hmm. available and the ability to share these things um but amateur astronomers can contribute to to astronomy so what um what kind of contributions have you been involved in over the the years the decades in in, in astronomy research and development,
0: I think um, back in back in the uh, earlier days in the seventies, in when I was sort of a teenager, um, I belonged to the South Downs Astronomical Society, which is based near Chichester, and uh, we had a very very active meteor. Group, for example, and that led to us becoming really was regarded as the world's sort of most active observers in 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 meteor astronomy, and uh, that led to several papers being published. So we were contributing to the understanding of, uh, say, the Perseid meteor shower was, was one speciality, um, and then uh, there were one or two other things you could do in those days uh, um, that contributed to science, but. In recent times, I suppose, um, planetary imaging, uh, the science, there are a lot of the thing is about amateur astronomers is there are a lot of us. And there are very few professionals that are able to, you know, the instruments they use are dedicated and very expensive. And they can't just turn their telescope to look at Jupiter every five, you know, five minutes like we can do and thousands of us. Around the world are observing at any one time, so we can pick up things that the professionals can't do. So that is one of the uh, one of the areas, and and th- things like variable star research, uh, measurements. Again, there are a lot of amateurs making good con- contributions to, and also discovering supernovae and that kind of thing. So um, I've, I've toyed with a lot of these things over the years, and uh, and w- once I retired, I, you know, having done a lot of producing a lot of pretty pictures of deep sky objects. Um, I realised that it was becoming incredibly, it's become very easy to produce beautiful images now. And I wanted to do something uh, when I retired that was a bit more uh, sciencey, if you like, and, and being able to do something a little bit more valuable. So hence the recent work I've been doing.
1: And I think with the things you described, finding supernovae, uh, finding astro- near Earth asteroids and images uh, and observing things on the on the, the planets, particularly the giant planets, so you mentioned Jupiter, I know that the Juno spacecraft uh, that's currently orbiting relies on largely amateur observers to give context. It can see a tiny bit of Jupiter and it relies on images from <laughs> amateur astronomers around the world. And they have a team that they work with uh, relatively closely to, to to observe it. But amateurs over the years have discovered impacts on Jupiter. And so that the supernovae, uh, the uh, the asteroids, it's tempting to say they're due to serendipity, right? That was just you know good luck in terms of being there. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's a little bit unfair because, or to some extent at least, because you have to make your own luck. I mean, the only the reason that those amateurs are discovering supernovae or asteroids or impacts on Jupiter is because they're there spending the time making those um, observations all the time. It it takes a lot of dedication to be yep. able to be lucky
0: right it does indeed it, indeed it's not just uh yes it's not just down to luck. it's down to 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 dedication i mean if you look at some of the i mean even with the quality of the images that the, the the best images produce it's attention to detail tremendous amounts of effort and a long-term learning process to 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 really get the you know the best quality but uh sure i mean also with, with an impact that you on jupiter it is you have to be in the right place at the right time so um yeah it it's um it, it does take a lot of dedication to to do any of those things
1: i've heard it compared in the past to uh some wildlife photography so when you get people who've got an amazing picture of uh i don't know a curlew in the, yes. the uh, yeah. on the north uh, the norfolk broads or whatever that they've seen you know in in the sunning in a in a in a fen or something well you know they published that photo. It's an amazing photo. What you don't see is the hours and hours yeah. and hours of waiting for that blooming bird to, <laughs> to show that up, is, right?
0: That is correct. Yes, that is a, a very good analogy. So you mentioned
1: wanting to focus a little bit on on something a bit more kind of science, a bit more rigorous, rigorous if you like, technically mm-hmm. uh, challenging. Um, what um, What have you been up to recently then?
0: Well, um, since 2019, uh, I met uh, a chap, actually in cells at, at Patrick's, um, and um, he mentioned this research that a group of uh, about three or four amateurs at the time were doing into an area um, in uh, post-common envelope binary stars, and it's related to exoplanets. What, what they were doing is they were measuring the eclipse times of these particular binary stars, and looking, by, by measuring the variations in these eclipse times over a long period of time, uh, it's possible to, if you like, discover uh, exoplanets or uh, planets that are, are actually revolving around these, uh, these binary systems um by because these eclipse timings are not uh, well they should be very very precise and, and, and in fact they are quite precise but um when you measure these eclipse timings over a long number of years uh, there appear to be variations in to the predictions the clockwork predictions of these timings and this is the area uh, it's called etvs eclipse timing variations into this particular type of Binary star, and th- this really attracted me. And I, I, I just offered to start taking measurements for them because you know I, I've got the equipment here to make the precise photometric measurements and uh, do all the precise calibrations to make those images, uh, you know, give you good, accurate results. And so I, I got into into the group, and, and it's taken off from there um, to the point where I've written a lot of the software that the team uses. Uh, and uh, this is culminated in a, a recent paper that we have just published,
1: and, and that paper's uh, in Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, so a you know a, a very highly respected astronomical journal that is published in by professional astronomers all the time. So I mean, congratulations on that. So that's a, mm-hmm. certainly a, a, a good achievement to, to, to get that in there. Um, the in terms of this discovery, let's let's step. Uh, let's step back and go right so you, there was a bunch of stuff you talked about there so uh, common um, envelope binaries uh, yes tell us a little bit what what's a common envelope binary star yes
0: post common envelope binary stars that this is a, the reason why we're interested in this sort of star is because uh, of their particular evolution so you have you start with a binary star system. It's two stars that are revolving around each other in uh, a a common gravitational orbit. And um, one of those stars will be more massive than the other just by, you know, the the way things go. And uh, what happens with these particular stars, they start off life revolving around uh, at an orbital distance perhaps the sort of size of the Earth's orbit, that kind of thing. And then one of those stars eventually evolves into a red giant and uh, starts to expand. And the material starts to flow uh, and reach the smaller, slightly cooler main sequence star. And eventually uh, this material flows around both of them and it forms a common envelope. And what happens is that uh, the envelope uh, takes on the energy and the angular momentum of uh, the smaller star as well. And eventually, that that take up of energy is is enough to expel the common envelope from the system. And the two stars have to respond by moving closer together to conserve the angular momentum of what's left between the two. And they get to the point where they are whizzing around in an orbital distance that's actually less than the radius of our sun. So they're very, very close now. And they are spinning so fast that um, typical times are about a two hour uh, orbital period. And so over a period of a night, you can actually observe. So, of course, when I say looking for an eclipse, if, if we're lucky enough to be looking along the plane of their uh, orbital uh, their their orbit, uh, one of those stars might it will appear to go in front of the other. And so we're able to observe uh, a dimming in brightness as the fainter one goes in front of the, uh, the brighter one. And when they're side by side, you've got maximum brightness. Yes. And then when the brighter one is in front, you've got a smaller dip, the secondary dip. And those are the eclipses that we're measuring. And so uh, th- those should be like clockwork. And they're not quite so that's what we're looking for
1: and so these eclipses as you say it's it's when one star goes in front of the other so when they're side by side you see the light from both stars when correct. one happens to we're lucky when one happens to be in front of the other we only see the light of one star roughly mm. speaking whether that's the brighter one or the, or the fainter one so it's it's not quite like an eclipse of the moon sorry a, a solar eclipse where the moon blocks all the light from the sun it's it's a bit like that but if the moon were also glowing a bit yes as well you it wouldn't be completely dark
0: that's correct and um I, you know, these, uh, uh, the the stars that are left over are, uh, typically the one that's become a red giant. It ends up as a very hot, in this particular type of uh, system very hot white dwarf or sub dwarf and the other one remains a slightly cooler main sequence star and so there's quite a lot of reflection of energy from the very hot one so some of the curves are quite smooth uh you 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 can see you can see in the light curve over a period of two or three hours there are the reflective energy reflected energy as well and so you can see quite a lot of detail in in the system but we are talking about Dips in brightness of, you know, some of these are are reasonably easy to record. Some of them have up to, say, a a whole magnitude, but you've got to record them quite quickly to get an accurate trace of the dip. So we are taking measurements, some of our images are perhaps every 30 seconds, every 45 seconds, because we need that time resolution to get an accurate plot of the dip uh, so that we can then calculate where the theoretical uh minimum point is so that's that's the skill of it
1: and so this means that you you have to have pretty good um calibration of your of your instruments to know that when you're when you're measuring the brightness of these stars it, it's essentially a relative measurement right you don't yes. you don't necessarily care about exactly how bright this image is whether you know no. but 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 you do you do need that to be stable i guess i mean if, yes. Your, if yes. your yes the telescope was changing it would break the the whole
0: system absolutely we we do we, we we take a lot of care we try not to record these events lower than 40 degrees so that we don't get too much uh effect due to the atmosphere we also obviously try to avoid the moon being too bright and too close is, uh, that's 40
1: degrees altitude above the ground right that's Off the, the ground that's yeah, correct yeah,
0: yeah. yeah so that um obviously uh you you know as with all things uh, in astronomy we always try to take images of galaxies planets or anything as high in the sky altitude wise as we can to to uh, avoid the extinction effect of the atmosphere and also if the moon is very bright you, it can cast a gradient across the image which can cause inaccuracies with the photo- photometry because the way we work out what the brightness of the target star is is by looking at the brightness of various reference stars and we have to choose those reference stars and they of course have to be in the same field of view and we try also to make sure that the reference stars are of a similar color type to the star we're recording. So a lot of care and attention is taken in, 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 um, as you say, calibrating the image. And then we have to calibrate the optical effects out of our system by taking what what we call flat images to to make sure that the the optical imperfections of the system are subtracted away. And we're just looking at the real uh, signal, if you like. And so, yeah, a lot of care is needed
1: and and i guess in the 60s and the 90s even that that was all done um, professional astronomers did that a lot a lot of the time i guess in the 90s professionals were starting to use digital cam- digital yes. technology but yes. that was not accessible to, to to amateur astronomers and certainly if you're doing this with with film as mm-hmm. as was done you know decades yes. decades ago and that was that was obviously a lot harder but now with with digital technology with relatively inexpensive relatively i say they're still they're not cheap right but relatively inexpensive cameras that you can you can buy Yep. off the shelf essentially and then you mentioned software i mean you you can now write software to do this yourself so if you know what you're doing with coding anyone can can do this right
0: yes and, and indeed i um there are all sorts of software packages to help amateurs actually do very accurate photometry what what i should mention is we're talking about men, um looking at whether or not there are uh unseen third or fourth bodies that are orbiting these systems and hence pulling the center of gravity away, causing these variations in eclipse timings. But I should mention that a lot of amateurs now are able to actually look for exoplanets that are known to be uh, revolving around star systems. And those exoplanets themselves um, eclipse the parent star. And that causes there to be a very, very small dimming in, in the term of like 20, 20 milli magnitudes, that kind of thing, mm. tiny magnitude variations. And that that is also how uh, exoplanets are discovered. So that's where the exoplanet itself is transiting the star. Now we're looking at eclipse eclipses of the stars in a binary system. Uh, so we're not looking at the direct transit of this unseen body. But, but um, your question was about, yes, if you've got the right software, um, you can actually um, measure the, the dips in brightness due to an exoplanet, an unseen body, perhaps like a very large Jupiter going in front of a parent star. And that is another area where amateurs can contribute. And um, there is a, a project called ExoClock, where amateurs are now measuring these um, uh, exoplanet transits, and they they are building up information for professionals for a forthcoming satellite that's going up, where these systems are going to be uh, observed in more detail.
1: So really are contributing to the, the real cutting edge science is going to be done with i mean obviously satellites and, and spacecraft are rather beyond the means of yes. amateur astronomers they, they do yes. need the uh, the international yeah. collaborations and so on this is uh so and and just to just to finish off on this on this discovery that 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 you're this 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 research that you've been doing so you mentioned that you're, you're measuring the timing of these eclipses because if if there is a planet going around one of these stars it yes. will make that star wobble uh, just as the as the planet goes around the planet doesn't just go around a star the star goes around the planet a little bit yes uh, and, and and wobbles and that wobble means that the the point at, point at which we see it apparently pass in front of the other star will be slightly different because it've it wobbled left or right essentially
0: that uh, is correct yes orbit. that's correct and that is the essence of this by measuring Eclipse type the variations in the theoretical eclipse times. Um, we 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 sometimes see uh, like a sinusoidal variation over many years. And um, w- the work is well. There could be many. There could there could be several factors that we. There are several known factors that will influence this eclipse timing. Um, and you have to get rid of those. You have to first calculate um you get uh, and and get those out of the equation and what you're left with is this uh, variation and and this is this is the argument that uh, teams of people have said in the past that we've taken everything away and we're now left with a a, a variation it must be due surely to an unseen body that's uh, and now these these bodies could be rotating around each individual star or some of them could be going around both stars. It's not actually known uh, (laughs) whether or not they are stars going around, uh, you know, both of the stars or and and when were those planets formed, those exoplanets formed? Were they formed after? Were they formed out of material of this common envelope? or Were they formed when those individual stars evolved, if you like, in their early evolution? So there's a lot of unknown questions uh, or uh, unknown answers. Um, and yeah, so, uh, th- th- that's, that's the essence. Now we actually, uh, in our paper, we are, um, s- asking the question whether or not it is correct to, uh, put these variations down to unseen exoplanets. Um, because there's been, there are about 16 exoplanets that have been, uh, put into the NASA exoplanet database, as discovered by the ETV technique. And there are about 5000 known exoplanets through different techniques, but only 16 have been put into the database due to measurements of this kind. And we are actually, if you like, our paper is casting doubt on that, rather, because we are our measurements over the past few years are not following the models that have been previously published for the discoveries of those exoplanets.
1: Uh, so, in, so in fact, and this is a really important bit of, of science is to yes. verify other observations and, uh, yeah. and so on of any science. You want to verify it sometimes by, by another, certainly with a different team, with another set of yeah. observations and so on. So what you're saying is that someone's made his observations and said, oh, we think there's a planet there. you've been able to go well actually it doesn't that doesn't quite fit yes um so there could be other explanations. is that because it is that because you think there are other explanations that you can identify or just because it doesn't quite fit if if that planet were there it would have a different effect from what you measure
0: yes um we're not actually saying we're not absolutely completely discounting the fact there could be uh, exoplanets there What what we're looking at over a period of if you take some of the stars we observe, uh, NY Virginis or HW Virginis, for example, two examples of the stars. Over the last 20 years, there have been half a dozen proposed exoplanets uh, over the time. And though those proposed exoplanets have got, had all the maths done to work out their orbits and to fit the orbits into the obs- observations. But what we're finding after as little period as say three months, Observ- uh new new measurements are just diverging from from the model and so mm-hmm. another team comes along and refi- says oh perhaps there's a fourth body and what we're rather concerned about is a bit like uh you know you can make any waveform you like by adding more and more higher frequency terms to produce a beautiful a, a fit to a particular waveform mm. and we feel that it's a little bit like that oh we'll add another one and another one and we'll refine the orbit and we'll we'll fit that little uh, part of the curve and then six months more of observations and we find that again we're diverging and not one of them there's one at the moment that's holding true only because the new model has been proposed so recently that we haven't had enough time to make measurements to see whether it Holds to that model,
1: and so that could be because it could be as is proposed. There's, a, there's a, a fourth planet, or a fifth planet, or a yeah. sixth planet, or whatever, however however you go with this. Um, or I guess it could be it could be a problem with the with the models that are being that are being used. This is also an important thing to know if there are models of these eclipse timing variations uh, and the way these stars are orbiting and changing because mm-hmm. the stars the stars' orbits might change over months and years or slight to to small extent. Is that possible?
0: Yes, and also these stars have mag- things, they have complicated magnetic effects going on. They have star spots and all sorts of things that are going on. And our feeling is that if you're talking about something that two objects that are whirling around each other uh, uh, ten times a day, or, or you know, nearly at that kind of time, and they are inside the orbit of the you know their orbit is would be inside our sun's or um, radius, if you like. Mm. Um, And one of them is at 40,000 degrees Kelvin. I feel there must be some physics going on that we don't yet understand. And and the the magnetic effects are things that we have to calculate out in our work. And so do the other teams. But those magnetic effects are being refined. And uh, there there are papers being published New magnetic effects are being understood and new models are being produced. So there must be physics yet undiscovered that is affecting this. And we feel that uh, that's probably what's going on. This It's probably a hybrid effect, a bit of magnetic, a bit of gravitational energy loss uh, and possibly a, a, an unseen body or two. So it's a very complicated area and um, and so that you know, I think there's got to be a lot more work done to to really get to the bottom of some of these systems.
1: But you say really important to go. It's it's it isn't as simple as it looks at first glance. You know that that first estimate of oh, there's clearly a planet there isn't. Yeah. It, it might not be quite that simple. And as you say, lots of lots of other. And I guess that's the other thing is that either that you know there's more planets, which is an exciting thing to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, going around these stars. Or, or there's some new physics that we don't understand. And either of those is very exciting. Either of those is interesting to is. be able to, to, to learn about. So it's win-win in that century.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean the, the, the thing about this is it you do need lifetimes of observations to get a good feeling. I mean, uh, uh, we'll you know, we'll keep on measuring and measuring the same stars. The ones that we've casted we've cast doubt on the particular predictions at the moment, we'll carry on. Um, looking at those. And and, and we would love to, I think the team uh, that I joined, the Altair group, um, and uh, the the, the team that I joined in 2019, they really uh, wanted to discover an exoplanet by this technique. And over the period of time that we've observed this, I think we've become a little bit more skeptical of, uh, you know, these predictions. And because we're able to say, well, look, Six months later, it's not following the plot, and uh, you know. So yeah, it's it's a long-term study, that's for sure.
1: And so, just to, just to finish, for, for anyone who's thinking, actually, this is, this is, sounds like something I'd like to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. contribute in this way to to these kind of this kind of science. Um, is this something? Uh, you obviously have a lot of experience of, uh, of coding, a lot of the technical skills, and a lot of experience of just doing astronomy. You know, you, you know your yep. way around a telescope, uh, very, very much so. Is this stuff you do from your back garden with a telescope in your, in your back garden? Or is this something that you use telescopes around the world to do? You know, what, what kits but, do you yep. use?
0: Yeah, both. Um, mo- uh, I have an observatory in 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 the garden behind me. I have a, a nine and a quarter inch uh, Schmidt Cassegrain telescope, um, standard stuff for, for amateurs, uh, and a CCD camera uh, attached to that with filters. But there are some of the some of the objects are not visible in the northern hemisphere. So uh, a lot of uh, so it's a mix and match. I'd, I'll do, and my colleagues will do the ones that they can. Uh, see from their observatories and in the the northern hemisphere, and then I'll rent telescopes at uh, iTelescope or whatever, and also one of our team, uh, David Pulley, has um, has got a bit of time on the two metre Fawkes telescope in Hawaii, and also the ones in Australia. And one or two of our stars are a little bit too faint for, for us, uh, you know, with our smaller telescopes. And so we, we occasionally need to to uh, get time on a, a two metre telescope. So it's a mixture of uh, the stuff in our back gardens, some of the sort of 17 inch telescopes at, in Australia, at I telescope, for example, and once or twice we need a one metre or a two metre to uh, just for one of the stars in our list
1: so this is this is not just your you know not your three inch refractor type stuff this is not your your, your beginner level amateur stuff. this is serious serious kit that, that, um, that people, yes although that people do but yeah, stuff br- a lot of people have
0: yes the brighter stars actually uh in our list i've managed to get measurements that work uh with a four inch refractor
1: okay so oh, okay, uh, so
0: yeah. yeah, you can. The t- tenth magnitude, uh, ninth. There are one or two of our stars that are ninth or tenth magnitude, um, and they go all the way down to eighteenth, nineteenth magnitude. The typical is thirteenth, fourteenth mag, which I can get with um, my nine and a quarter inch without without a problem.
1: Mm. And we and we we should say actually that you know magnitude is just this the scale yep. that astronomers yep. use. So the, the bigger the number, the fainter the object, as you say. So Absolutely.
0: Um, Sorry, I should say yeah, that's right. yeah.
1: Okay, so so this is kit that people people with a beginner level telescope um, and no. the inclination to get involved um, could could do so and, yes. and, and maybe uh, you know catch the bug for doing some of this uh, some of this science. That's, absolutely. Um, so the papers published in Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. It says eclipse timing variations in post-common envelope binaries are they a reliable indicator of circumbinary companions? And Ian, you're you're one of four authors, so it's it's a team of you, isn't it?
0: That's correct. Yes, the Alta team has four members at the moment. That's uh, myself, Ian Sharp, uh, David Pulley, who's really been the longest-standing uh, member since 2010. Uh, John Mallet, who lives in Selsey across the way, another observer, and Sebastian von Harrich, who's uh, a physicist, um, also based in uh, the south of England.
1: Uh, but all amateur astronomers, you know, not uh, not professional astronomers linked to a university, so very that's amateur cor- group. Yeah.
0: That's correct yes we're all amateurs um, we have backgrounds in in science and engineering uh, physics that sort of thing and it's publicly available as well on arxiv uh the public so people can search for it find it and uh, download it
1: i'll put the link on the the link will be on the on the, the podcast okay. website at pythagastro.uk that people can uh, uh, can go and look for uh, as well um, ian sharp Uh, Thanks very much for telling us about your uh, uh, astronomy contributions as as an amateur.
0: It's a pleasure and thanks for asking me to talk.
1: That's it for this month. Uh, Don't forget you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcaster pythagastro.uk. You can also find us on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.